Okay, with Daniel Wolf, Guardians of the Flame is the feature film. It played at our Experimental Dance Music Film Festival. There's a lot of elements in this film. It's really about this family, the Harrison family in New Orleans, and basically about their what they've gone through, I guess, in the last 20 years with Katrina and basically what what black culture means in their in their in their area. First question, Daniel, I'm curious about when did you first meet this family? I first met the Harrisons in 2006, which was right after Katrina yeah. hit New Orleans. They live in New Orleans. The filmmaker Jonathan Demi and I went down. Um, he, you know, he wanted to make a film, but it was unclear to both of us what it might turn out to be. We thought we were going down for one visit, and ended up going down four visits a year for six years. And so Jonathan Demme is the same uh, director that uh, Silence of the Lambs, Maturing Candy, Philadelphia. I just watched Married to the Mob, funny, like like three weeks ago. So it's funny that he directed go. that film as well. So then this yeah, is... And he's, your, go ahead. I was just saying, he's done a bunch of great documentaries. And I um, helped him on one um, called The Agronomist, which is about a man who owned a radio station in Haiti and was assassinated. Um, and he and I went down to Haiti a couple of times. So when Katrina happened, uh, we both said, well, let's go down there. And, it, you know, I didn't think we were making a film. I, you know, thought we were trying to understand a major development in American history. So then, so Jonathan, uh, no, no longer with us. So he was, he was like, how did this kind of, did, did you pass, did he pass the baton to you to finish the film? Like, how was that process? Well, we did we did a bunch of films from our visits to New Orleans. Um, one of them called New Home Movies from the Lower Ninth Ward, and then one called I'm Carolyn Parker, which was about a woman trying to get back in her home. And we were talking about finishing this movie about the Harrison family when Jonathan passed away. So I went back down with his son and a film crew and updated it in 2019. And we edited through COVID uh, and ended up with this movie. Gotcha. So he had a lot. He shot a lot of the footage previously. Right. Through the years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This footage goes back to 2006 and beyond. Gotcha. And then he was, but then he didn't have any, any idea of like what he wanted to do with it. And in a sense, we're like, he was just shooting the footage. He was shooting other films at the time. And then you decided with his son, I guess, like to kind of put this film together? Yeah, his son and some other people who had worked with him. Um, and I ended up editing it with Marta Renzi, who is my wife, um, which made it easier during COVID. Oh, Marta's your <laughs> wife. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we've shown films of hers in the past. So, okay, now I see the connection. Okay. Exactly. Um, did Jonathan have a notion of this film? I'm sure he did. You know, he really wanted to finish it we're good friends with the harrisons and it's an important subject um but we never talked about the nuts and bolts it doesn't it doesn't kind of work that way as you probably know it what happens is you get in the editing room and go hmm i wonder what we're going to do with this and then it plays out one way or another sometimes i guess right but i guess like for a lot <laughs> i guess what they call that cinema verte i guess right the style of documentary right. okay yeah, and this is this is very sort of down and dirty this film i mean it was a handheld camera. We brought some other camera people down eventually, but most of it is very intimate kind of raw footage. 
So, okay. So tell me about, okay. So you, did you, you went, you said you went back down in 2019. So you were looking yeah. at the footage and you were like, okay, we have, you were kind of figuring out what the story was going to be. And then you went down and kind of like, kind of filled in the gaps of what story you wanted to tell. Oh, nothing as organized as that. I can assure okay. you. Um, you know, that one of the things the Harrisons have been trying to do since the very beginning was to start a little neighborhood museum about the Mardi Gras Indian culture, which is very important to them and is about the legacy, uh, sort of African-American legacy. And we knew they'd completed the museum, actually gotten it built, but hadn't seen it. So we headed down there, among other things, just to film that and to catch up with them. Gotcha. And then so in the... In the... What's, is her name here? Is it here? So Harry, I apologize if I didn't get her name correct. The mother Harice. of the family. Sorry? Harice. Harice, Harice. Yeah. So she's kind of the matriarch of the family. She's your, she's your main character. She's kind of like yeah. telling the, she's your telling, she's telling the story for the audience, I guess. Right. Right. And she's now 86. And part yeah. of us getting this film done was to get it done while she was still around to appreciate it. And then their sons are all talented, like musicians, and it's it's just like there's some really interesting raw footage in the film. Like uh, I just uh, I, I'm remembering the the, the the son on a saxophone, and then he's like singing just beautiful music on the saxophone, and you could see in the background it's just like total chaos, right? From Katrina, like like I it's, it's like everything's just like it's just so like there's such a, such a contrast of like New Orleans yeah. and like just everything's in shambles but then he's still he's still playing his music right and you know part of what was distinctive about the harrisons was unlike the other film we made made i'm carolyn parker their real objective wasn't to get back in their houses or even to rebuild the neighborhood their specific objective was to make sure the culture returned and was healthy um because they see the mardi gras indian culture as the history of African-Americans mm -hmm. here so that and, and a cultural legacy that they wanted kids to know about uh, and adults to know about. So it was a different kind of film that way in that it was kind of about ideas. I mean, you're right. There's this great music and great dance and great costumes. Mm -hmm. But the motivation behind it all is let's keep this culture going, despite not only Katrina, but the the majority of society either not caring about it yeah. or treating it like a sort of circus uh and they think it's much more serious than that it's well the mac like the the it's an individual story but the macro conflict during katrina and this should always be documented where like it was the certain population that got got that got screwed i'm, I'm allowed to say that maybe you're not but they got screwed in new orleans where like they nobody gave a shit about them after a while and basically, that's what the film is about. It's about these families that houses got destroyed, and then, and then after a while, people just stopped caring, right? And then, and 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 basically, and it was the you know I hate to generalize, but it was the 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 black families, the black culture, like you said, in New Orleans that that needed to rebuild, and and nobody was really helping them, and and a lot of especially the federal government, I guess, right? Right, absolutely, and you know. Part of why Jonathan and I went down and kept going down was that it seemed like a real test of the United States's attitude towards black people and poor people. Yeah. I and mean, here was a incredible sort of lab case. The city's been destroyed. What do you do? Do you build it back? Do you help them? 
do you respect the culture? Well, as you point out, no to all those questions. Uh, under President George Bush, there wasn't much of that. And I think, you know, it's funny, there was sort of Katrina burnout after yeah. a few years. People didn't want to hear more about it, um, as you say. And I think that's kind of reversed now because it is history at this point. And I think it fits in with Black Lives Matter. It fits in with a lot of other issues that we're trying to deal with, class issues too. So that the, for me anyway, the Harrison family is a kind of inspiration of how you fight back against all that and how you end up, you know, uh, speaking your truth. Yeah. I, it's like Katrina taught America and if they were listening, because some people aren't, <laughs> is that is that it, what it's like? There's there's obviously a racial problem, but there's also there's a class problem. It's a class. There's a class divide in America, right? Where if you're not if you don't right. have means, whereas a lot of people in New Orleans they they had means, their homes got destroyed. They just they just went somewhere else for a long time, and they came back a year later, right? But if you don't have right. means, they don't they don't care. After a while, like you right. said, there is burnout. Like I, they care, they pretend that they care for a few weeks. They they basically, and then all of a sudden, everybody stops caring after a few weeks, and then these people are left to their own devices. Well, you know, in fairness, you can't say everybody stopped caring sure. because the government was never, never very I mean, good. In general, this. of course, yeah, yeah, right. But I mean, uh, there were volunteers who are still going down, yeah, years later, and certainly were down there a bunch, uh, and locals who, you know, it was sort of outside the government. It's one of the lessons that. I think we learned from that. I wrote a book about this called The Fight for Home. And the 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 point was that people banded together as they do in an emergency. And the government was, they didn't expect anything from the government. And then, lucky, lucky thing, because they yeah. didn't get anything much for a long time. Um, and part of the fight, I think, is that, and Harris says this in the film, is that the New Orleans before the storm was a tourist economy essentially, with a lot of especially Black people waiting on the tourists who were mostly white. And part of the effort is to try to change that formula, the economic and cultural formula, so that so that the new New Orleans doesn't return to that. Gotcha. And that's, that's, a, that's a tough one, because whether you're in Canada or America, I think tourism is one of those things that cities are using to get their economies going. Mm -hmm. And it's not always good for the majority of the population in those cities. I 100%. Like I'm from Niagara Falls, born and raised, so I totally understand. Like everything is fueled on on tourism, right? So, and and we're all yeah, we're waiting. We're we're waiting on on the tourists. That's basically what the, how, how our economy is built in Niagara Falls. So I totally get it. Right, and I I think part of the Harrison's point and the movie's point is this stuff that the tourists come to see has deeper meaning, and is significant and is a moment that people could be learning about resistance and about family and at home and what people care about. And that's built into the Mardi Gras Indian culture, uh, especially as um, verbalized by the Harrisons who make these amazing costumes, dance, parade on the streets, music, world-class musicians. Mm -hmm. it's, it's extraordinary. Can you explain to people what Mardi what Mardi Gras Indians are? Kind of. Um, okay. I, I, I think you have to see the film to get it better than I can explain it. But it is a group of people who in their neighborhoods, this isn't the big Mardi Gras you see on TV where there are floats and things. 
Yeah. This is in your local neighborhood. They make costumes. It usually takes a, a year for them to make them with beading and feathers, very intricate, um, that are some blend of African culture and Native American culture. And the oral tradition is it came from the Maroons, the people who escaped slavery and stayed with Indians, with Native Americans, and formed this kind of mixed culture. Uh, and this is a, a, a day of pride, where you come out in the neighborhood dressed like this, play your music, uh, sing your songs, and um, assert that no matter what's going on, you have this, you have this pride, and you have this heritage. Gotcha. So it's not like the traditional, like people think of when they, when they hear Mardi Gras, they think of near like the big party and everybody's having fun. But this is a different kind of Mardi Gras, I guess. Right. Right. This is I mean, everybody is having some fun, but yeah. this isn't taking off your shirt and throwing beads at each other. <laughs> this this, at least as the Harrisons understand it, is, uh, you know, culturally significant. Yeah, it's like yeah, like you said, it's not like 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 university students getting drunk and yeah, and basically partying. It's just a, there's 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 an emotional and historical significance to what they're doing, I guess, right? Yeah, it's its own language, its own music. Um, you know, these 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 uh, costumes, these elaborate costumes that they make are traditionally thrown out right after they parade, right after they mass. So they start again the next year and. Uh, everybody's sewing their own. It's a, it's a, um, it, you know, it's a real dedication. They can't it's, sell their their costumes, like they throw it out. That that seems like, it seems like such a waste in so many ways. So so many. Well, regards. I think, I think the point is that there's something um, sacred about them. Yeah, gotcha. And they aren't for sale. Uh, part of what the museum is about, the Harrison's Museum, Donald Harrison Senior Museum, is to keep some of these artifacts and costumes so people can see what has been created over the years. Yeah. You see, look at me, I'm thinking like a capitalist, right? So it's more. <laughs> well, it's, a, you know, it's, uh, it's everywhere that capitalism, it's hard to duck. Gotcha. And yeah, the me, so basically the it's a 15 year uh, film, which is amazing. So that you can see you're, you're seeing age, you're seeing people growing up and, and you're seeing the changes that occur. What did the family think when they first saw the film? I'm so curious about what their reaction. Uh, the first time we screened it for them, they had a bunch of very good suggestions. It wasn't oh. done yet. And okay. they had a bunch of, you know, we weren't going to make a film that they didn't like. Um, you know, I, I don't, some documentarians, I think, do this differently where, you know, whatever, what the filmmaker wants is what's most important. For us, what the family wanted was actually what was most important. And they gave us incredible leeway and uh, left a lot of it as was. But there was also parts where they said, you know, that's not quite right, or the emphasis is wrong here. And as by then friends, but not integral members of the Mardi Gras community, yeah. we took all their advice and tried to do it as well as we could. And the, and the Harrisons ended up happy with the film. Right? That's a, yeah. Well, these days it seems like like uh, from my experience talking to people like yourself or documentarians, there's an unwritten rule where you get the 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 subjects have to have to approve your your cuts. They have to be comfortable with what you're saying. It's not like a it's not like a rule like a legal rule, but it's more of like you want to you want to respect your subject, like because they're uh, right. Yeah, we I mean we owe we owe the Harrisons an enormous debt. They open their homes and their lives to us for many years 
Uh, and you certainly want to make something that represents them as accurately as we can. So you got so you, so and then there's the legacy of uh, of your friend, right, of Jonathan, because like you have him as credit as the as the as the DOP of your film. Yeah, well, he did an awful lot of the shooting. You know, we went down there the first time. I think we went down there, and he had a little hand camera that he was shooting with. And as we flew back home, I said, Jonathan, that you know, this is cool that you did this. And he said, Yeah, I've never done this before. And I said, what do you mean you've never done this before? You know, here's this Oscar winner. Yeah. He says, I've never shot a film before. <laughs> I went, oh, okay. And so he he was sort of learning as he was going. And, you know, if you're a student of Jonathan's films, I think you can see the effect of handheld documentary work in later films like Rachel Getting Married yeah. and some others that he clearly loved this idea of getting up close and gritty. Uh, as opposed to, you know, the the major Hollywood productions, Philadelphia, Science of the Lambs that he'd done earlier. Yeah, because, yeah, Rachel Getting Married. I remember that film. Uh, it's like, listen, for someone, he nailed that quick segue. He nailed the the the, the attic kind of um, kind of personality, like nailed it. Like and then right. she was fantastic in it. Uh, well, made her career, I guess, Anne Hathaway. Right. So but I remember that film being all handheld. It was totally all like the whole film was handheld. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that, I mean, it was part of what was going on in the film world then, but I think also this New Orleans work that had been going on for years yeah. affected it. And a bunch of the people, you'll see some of the Harrisons in Rachel Getting Married. Oh, really? He, he took people from New Orleans and brought them up to be part of the, the crew. And yeah, the I, they're, yeah. Just yeah, there's the that, that's a that's a really good film. I, I, I gotta watch that film again because I remember seeing in the film for the first time, like that weekend. And uh, yeah, it doesn't get the credit. It, it, it should be getting more credit than it deserves. So it's so funny because he's making that film. Like, so you're talking about he's he's in Katrina working, shooting these films like uh, Guardians of the Flame, kind of the, the initial kind of shooting of it. And then he's going back and kind of shooting these Hollywood films in the meantime, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of it is just economics. There's no yeah. money in these documentaries. Uh, yeah. He loved making them, but he he had to keep coming back and doing his bread and butter. And he loved them. I mean, you know, Jonathan liked the big audience. That was part of the thrill of it. If he could get stuff in theaters and Guardians of the Flame is never going to be Silence of the Lambs. You know, two different things. But it also builds his brand, right? Because he gets a, a award-winning film, then he makes these documentaries. More people will pay attention to these documentaries because he has a, his brand is built is being built up with his Hollywood movies, I guess, right? I think that's right. Although I can hear him rolling in his grave when you say build his brand. <laughs> um, yeah. But yes, they all interconnected. No question. Like, yeah. well, I got I got to point out one thing where like a lot of filmmakers kind of make the same films over and over again. There's nothing wrong with that in terms of genre, in terms of thematics. But he kind of jumps all around. Right. Like Married to the Mob is a comedy. It's a pure comedy. Right. And then you got Sounds of the Lambs, which is a horror film. Philadelphia, which is a pure drama, obviously a transcending in terms of the LGBT community. And then, you know, Rachel getting married, which is another, you know what I mean? Like, so he's flipping genres and styles and themes. Like most filmmakers don't do that. Yeah. And, you know, and the documentaries are, are all over the map too. I mean, there's this yeah. one about Haiti called The Agronomist. There's one called Cousin Bobby, which was about his cousin who was a sort of activist minister in Harlem. 
Um, he did a documentary on Jimmy Carter. I mean, oh, really? they're all over the map as well uh, and, and well worth seeing. Yeah, 100%. So then, so so Brooklyn is his son. He's yeah. the, he's credited as the producer. So he would, you, you, you like you're, you're describing like you guys, what was his involvement in the film? Like he really, like, like his dad's passed away. So this is his legacy film in a lot of ways. Yeah. He, he, as I say, came down to New Orleans, um, helped shoot it, helped talk about it. I think he would like to actually make another film about another person down there that we followed for all those years. Uh, Pastor Mel Jones, who is a activist down there, and he, Brooklyn is actually shooting his own fictional film as we speak. Um, so he's continuing that legacy, and has been very supportive, as has uh, Jonathan's wife Joanne Howard. So he's like he's trying to like he's getting into the to the family business, I guess. Yeah, again, he wouldn't describe it as business. You know that the the end of Guardians of the Flame. It says um, guard your legacy. Yeah, and I think what Brooklyn's doing is guarding his legacy, yeah. which is from his father and a sort of history of, as you say, very diverse but very caring movie making. Yeah, and so you're—I uh, got to point out—we're doing this podcast. I think you just had a birthday, correct? I had a birthday a while ago. Yes. No. So your wife just had a birthday, right? My wife did just have a birthday this weekend. Yeah. So happy birthday to your wife, because your wife is the one that submitted to the festival. We've shown some of her films in the past. So you guys are kind of like a filmmaking couple, I guess. Yeah, her much more than me. I mean, this is my first directorial because I lived the footage. She's made a bunch of films where she's been director and editor. On this one, she was editor, which I'm not sure how you distinguish the roles. We were both trying to figure out how you make this movie so that it's the best possible. Gotcha. So what do you what do you generally do? What's your like, like you said, this is your like, I'm a writer. See all these books behind me. Oh, gotcha. I didn't write them all, but I wrote some of them. So <laughs> so when we had been in New Orleans a while uh, and I realized how slow filmmaking is. Yeah. I wrote a book about it called The Fight for Home because I wanted to make sure that we would cover some of the people and the issues that. As it turned out, I was right. It took decades to actually get to in oh. terms of film. I thought you wrote a book about the slow process of filmmaking. <laughs> no, no, that would be a dull book, I think. And so, yeah, so you're you're a novelist by trade. So what was in terms of storytelling? Because it's like, like you said, there's a lot of, like in, in the because you're telling a story with the book, telling the story with the film. What was what do you think the biggest thing you learned from doing this particular project as a storyteller? Um. That's a good question. I, it, it's certainly different. For one thing, and this is sounds stupid and probably is, it's collaborative in a way that writing just isn't. Yeah. So, so you're not only trying to figure it out with your editor and your producer, but you're trying to figure it out with the subject of the film as well. So there are a lot of voices, and it's much more reaching a consensus than it is me sitting in a room figuring out what I want to write. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, and it was part of what Jonathan was really good at. I mean, at the end of the day, he called the shots, but he was a very good collaborator and both with musicians and editors and everything. It, it, he liked that process. And you're in, uh, in when did you first meet Jonathan? Jonathan and I lived near each other and our kids were friends in elementary school. So I think that goes back to, I want to say the 1980s somewhere. 
and this is a purely selfish question on my part, but you wrote a book uh, called Negro League Baseball, correct? Yeah. I'm a huge baseball fan. Tell me about uh, that that process writing that book. Sure. Uh, I, the first book I ever wrote was a biography of Sam Cooke, the singer, soul singer. And as I wrote that book, I was looking for pictures of him, which weren't that easy to find. And I went to Memphis and met a man called Ernest Withers, who was an African-American photographer in segregated Memphis and had some pictures of Sam Cooke, but had tremendous pictures of other things, including Negro League Baseball. So when I was done with the Sam Cooke book, I said, um, this should be a book. And I actually ended up doing a couple of books with Ernest. So it's his photographs and my uh, description of the scene. Uh, Memphis had its own team. Mm -hmm. So everybody passed through there from Satchel Page to Jackie Robinson uh, and a bunch of people we don't know and shouldn't know. Sure. So it was a piece of history. You know, in some ways, it's like Guardians of the Flame. It's a piece of history you want to preserve. And they're gorgeous photographs. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of how that came about. Is it, I went to the, the Negro Baseball Hall of Fame in Kansas City. It's fantastic. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. It's, I mean, it, it's it's an amazing American story. Um, what what people who are segregated can manage to do, whether it's baseball or Mardi Gras Indian culture or literature or cooking, it's a whole separate world. So people don't know, but before 1947, there was a major leagues that, that we see now. People, if you're black, you weren't allowed to play in the major leagues before 1947, which sounds crazy, right? And so they had their own league, which was very prosperous, which was, they had a kind of few leagues going on. There's a little bit of chaos, but if you look at the history of it, you probably know more than I do, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like, there was like a, it was a very prosperous league. It was selling out like Comiskey Park. I remember like they would, it just like, then these great uh, stars that people don't know. Like, so, so people know Babe Ruth, who Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig is during that time. And then, like you said, you got Sassel Page and you got Buck O'Neill and, and um, Josh Gibson, right? The the catcher, but people right. don't know who they are because they played in this league that because they weren't allowed to play in the majors. Well, when you say people don't know who they are, a lot of African Americans know who they sure. are. Sure, I'm being, of course, another another. I'm being general, of course. Like, yeah, more people should know about. It. That's a better way to say it. More yeah, absolutely, know. absolutely. You know, I was this summer up at the Baseball Hall of Fame, and they've done a pretty good job of starting to incorporate more of the people from Negro League Baseball. Um, it's, you know, they were great players and it's an important story. Yeah. And uh, and so basically it's like, but it's also, like you said, your your books seem, there seems to be an American thematic to it, right? So that's another, like, uh, about yeah. American history in the, in, the, in the 20th century about this league. And and the irony is that it went bankrupt because Jackie Robinson and and other players started playing in the major leagues. And then therefore they knew that as soon as Jackie Robinson puts on his, uh, his cleats to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, that league was then was going to be end up going bankrupt eventually, I guess. Yeah. Cause all the talent was going to go into the majors yeah. where among other things, they were paid better. Um, you know, and, and that the working conditions or playing conditions yeah. of Negro league baseball were often pretty difficult. I mean, you know, it was long bus rides. It was stadiums, some of which were good and some of which weren't. 
you you were treated much better once you got to what are called the major leagues. Yeah, there should be more movies about that, about even like even fiction movies about about this this time. So because it is it is fascinating. So, yeah, people can check out your books on uh, just, just Google your name. You can because like all your films, like you have like how Lincoln learned to read Fourth of July, uh, Asbury Park. So it's like the, the, the Memphis Blues, like uh, basically a lot like a lot of music, a lot of historical like American history kind of books that you write about. Yep. Yeah, it's why Guardians of the Flame made sense to me. I was just gonna say, like, it's like that. It, it's a perfect segue to you being a documentarian because you're doing it in your books, right? Right. And you're, by the way, your wife is very talented too. So I'm glad that she 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 admitted this film to our festival. Great. Well, we're delighted to be in it. What did you think about? We send the feedback to you. What did you think about what the audience had to say about your film? Oh, I thought it was great. I mean, I, I, you know, for. I guess four of the five were what we call Caucasians, the yeah. responses. And they were people who clearly didn't know anything about this and got very interested because of the film. And that that's exciting to me because that was the whole point of the thing was to show a part of our culture, as you say about Negro League Baseball, that gets underappreciated mm -hmm. and people get to go, ah, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about this. I now want to know more. So I was delighted to get that feedback. History should be uh, told in schools every single year. There's like, there seems to be a lack, as we're learning like through <laughs> in the last month with uh, with the wars happening, that seems like a, the, the a certain generation is is missing their history lessons on what, what has occurred in the last hundred plus years. Well, I, you know, I think generations have been missing it for a while. Um, yeah. You know, I and it's it doesn't have to be dull and like schoolwork, it's exciting. I mean, yeah. the Mardi Gras Indian stuff is riveting just to look at the dancing and the costumes and the music. So, I mean, you know, if that's history, it can actually be fun as well as being something you want to learn about. 100%. Like, yeah, that's what, yeah, I, for me, it's, all, it's always been fun. I love, I love, especially, I have a very fascination with the 20th, 20th century, as you seem to as well. So I appreciate your time. I think this is a fantastic feature film. I wish you the the best of luck and and uh it seems like like you said your your friend your friend Jonathan who passed away and his and his son basically I'm sure he's happy if if he's anywhere in the world if you if you're a spiritualist or whatever your ideology is if he's somewhere I'm sure he's happy that the film is completed. Well, I I hope he's happy. <laughs> That's that was part of our goal and it's a delight to be in your festival. It's really nice. I appreciate your time and I'll, I'm sure I'll talk to Marta soon when she makes her next film. Great. Thank Thanks you so much. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Shlemiel, Shlemazel, Hudson, Bamford, Incorporated. We're gonna do it. Give us any chance, we'll take it. With us any rule, we'll break it. We're gonna make our dreams come true. Do it our way. Nothing's gonna turn us back now. Straight ahead and on the track now. We're Dream.